0: Sticks and stones. Remember that old nursery rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So it goes. Yet for 13 year old Megan Meyer, nothing could have been further from the truth. Megan Meyer died believing that somewhere in this world lived a boy named Josh Evans who hated her. He was 16. He owned a pet snake, and she thought he was the cutest boyfriend she ever had. Josh contacted Megan through her page on MySpace, the social networking website. They flirted for weeks, but only online. They never met. Josh said his family had just moved to the area, was homeschooled, and had no phone number yet. But on October 15, 2006, the tone of those messages that they were communicating, his messages, changed. With a message saying via the account, quote, I don't know if I want to be friends with you anymore because I've heard that you're not very nice to your friends. Similar messages were sent. Some of Megan's messages were shared with others and bulletins were posted about her. And according to Meyer's father, the last message sent by the Evans account read as follows, quote, everybody in O'Fallon knows who you are. You're a bad person, and everybody hates you. Have an expletive, rest of your life. The world would be a better place without you, unquote. Megan purportedly responded with a message, reading, quote, You're the kind of boy a girl would kill herself over, unquote. Megan was found by her mother 20 minutes later in her bedroom closet hanging from her belt. And despite attempts to revive her, she was pronounced dead the following day. Six weeks after her death, Megan's parents were informed that the mother of one of their daughter's friends, Megan's friends, with whom Megan had a falling out with, had created the Josh Evans account. And the parent, Lori Drew, then 47, who lived four houses down the street from the Myers, along with her daughter and an 18-year-old neighbor, Ashley Grills, created the fake account and characterized the hoax to a reporter as a joke. She told the police that the account was aimed at gaining Megan's confidence and finding out what Megan felt about her own daughter and other people. Witnesses testified that the women intended to use Myers' emails with Josh to get information about her and later humiliate her in retribution for her allegedly spreading gossip about Drew's daughter. The neighborhood mother who had informed the Myers that this woman, Lori Drew, had been responsible for the hoax account said quote, Lori laughed about it and that she said she had intended to mess with Megan." Unquote. Here's how the Wikipedia entry reads. Megan Taylor Meyer, November 6, 1992 to October 17, 2006, an American teenager from Darden Prairie, Missouri, committed suicide by hanging three weeks before her 14th birthday. Her suicide was attributed to cyberbullying through the social networking website MySpace. The mother of a friend of Meyer, Lori Drew, was later indicted on the matter in 2008, but in 2009 Drew was acquitted and never punished. The nursery rhyme is a lie. Sticks and stones hurt infinitely less than the venom of poisonous words. Now contrast that story, that tragic event with the following account from years gone by. Newman Hall stood early one morning on the summit of snowdown in Wales with hundred and twenty others who had been attracted by the prospect of an unusually grand sunrise. They were not disappointed. As they stood watching the sun tinge the mountain peaks with glory And sparkle in the legs, Dr. Hall was invited to preach. He was so overpowered with emotion that he could not even preach, but felt moved to pour out his soul rather in prayer. From Hall's own biography, we read these words I replied that God was preaching to us, and we had better hear his voice. But I offered prayer, and when I closed, I noticed that several men were shedding tears. The miners, in groups, marched away singing in their thrilling minor key. A year afterwards, an Englishman accosted me at Penzance, saying that he was one of the congregation on Snowdown that day and was there led to Christ. He was now a Sunday school teacher. Two years afterwards, when I was knapsacking near Snowdon, a man driving a cart containing cheeses and a live pig pulled up and asked me if he might give me a lift. I felt it a good opportunity for conversation. He had recognized me, and speaking of that sunrise, said it resulted in the conversion of 50 people. I said that I had only offered prayer. And he said, yes, something even greater still. As they only spoke Welsh, they didn't understand a word you said. But the effect was a revival in the village church nearby. Words are powerful. Proverbs 18:21 says death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. The message says it like this, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. See, our words have power. As James implies, they can be set on fire by hell itself, James chapter 3, verse 6. Or, as the Apostle Paul outlines for us in today's text, every follower of Christ, they should be ignited by the flame of the Spirit, not the fires of hell. Amen? Turn to Ephesians 4, if you would. Ephesians 4. Look at verses 29 and following. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, writes Paul, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, the spiritual discipline of our speech will make all the difference in the world in the spiritual development of your relationships with those around you. Whether you're a father or a mother, single or married, young or elderly, Paul's therapy applies to every Christian in this room today. As Christ followers, the quality of our words will paint a picture to the world about the condition of what's inside of our hearts. Worthless speech is a misrepresentation of Christianity, true Christianity. is what Paul implies. Our words ought to be worthwhile, not worth less. So every opportunity that you and I have to open our mouth and speak, we need to remember to filter our words through Paul's grid here. And for this week and next week, that's what we're going to look at, these verses that I just read. And the first thing that we should filter our words through is the grid of the fact that our words should advocate growth. They should advocate advocate growth in people. Verse 29, let's just look at that again. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. According to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now think about for a moment, just take a minute and think about what's come out of your, your mouth. I almost said trap, but that wouldn't have been a good word. <laughs> your mouth. Mouth is a trap, isn't it? It traps us all the time. Think about what's come out of your mouth or written online in the last 24 hours. Think about that. Now let me ask you this question. Did it build others up or did it tear them down? What you and I say has an effect on everyone within earshot or eye gaze. Right? Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. The word unwholesome carries this idea of something putrid, sour, foul, and of no value whatsoever. It's worth less speech, and he literally says, don't be a gutter mouth. That's what he's saying. You ever hear someone spewing forth garbage in their speech? I know you have. Ever done it yourself? Now this may be difficult for you to believe, but I used to be pretty much a master at this before Christ came into my life. People would regularly ask me back then, you eat with that mouth? Now, Paul doesn't identify specifically what those unwholesome words are, but it doesn't take a a rocket scientist or a genius to figure it out. Let me suggest a few things. And now you see if you find yourself engaging in any one or more of these types of unwholesome talk. Okay? First one, gossip. That's probably the biggest one, right? Probably the biggest, most tolerated sin in the church at large and by far the most destructive. We have all kinds of ways to veil it and redefine it, too. Pretty cool at that. We've all heard, or even practiced, the dark art of wrapping juicy information about someone in the cloak of a prayer request, right? That's the typical thing. I really think deep down inside, all of us know the difference between the two, don't you? Proverbs 20.19 says, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. There's an old Yiddish legend in a small Eastern European town. A man went through the community slandering the local rabbi. One day he realized the harm he had caused the rabbi, and feeling remorseful, he begged the rabbi for forgiveness. And he offered to undergo any kind of penance whatsoever to make amends. Well, the rabbi instructed him to go to the town square with a feather pillow, cut it open, and scatter the feathers to the wind, and then return to see him. And he'd give him further instructions. So the man did what he was instructed, and the feathers blew into every corner, as you can imagine, every gutter, every window, every door, everywhere in the town. And he went back to the rabbi and he said, you've just one more thing to do. The rabbi told him, go now back into the town and gather up every feather. But that's impossible, the man protested. The wind's already scattered them. Precisely, the rabbi said. And although you truly wish to correct the evil you have done, it is as impossible to repair the damage done by your words as it is to recover the feathers from that pillow. Words like feathers fly in the wind, goes the old saying, and it's absolutely true, isn't it? Proverbs 11.13 says, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. How much of your conversation and mine unnecessarily, now think about it really seriously, how much of it unnecessarily revolves around other people and their problems? Now, I often think that Adam and Eve must have had a boring life in the garden because they didn't have anyone else to talk about. <laughs> how do you deal with gossip when you hear it? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? I'll tell you how I am supposed to deal with it. By killing it. By killing it. Don't even listen to it. Develop an intolerance for it. Do you want to create a healthy, unified church culture or a culture at large? If something unwholesome is said about anyone in the course of a conversation, end the conversation. But how often do we really do that? Even if you're not part of the conversation, you could step in, excuse yourself, and state the case. You could say something like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean over here, but you know, so-and-so's not here to explain that situation in which he or she was directly involved, so maybe out of respect for them, and by the way, that's not something you find very often, respect for anyone. Maybe out of respect for them, this conversation should move in another more positive direction. Now I know you're all rolling your eyes deep back down inside there. I I can't see them physically, but I know you're doing it. And you're thinking, what kind of a geek would actually do that? <laughs> That's the problem. We don't do that. Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, or contention quiets down. Just remember this rule of thumb. This might help you. Whoever gossips to you will gossip about you pretty much a standard axiom. Innuendo, that's another one. Another piece of worthless speech, I think, unwholesome talk. Someone once said, insinuations are the rhetoric of the devil. Have you dropped subtle slams creating negative opinions against someone by manipulating your words very crafty? It doesn't come out sounding like a negative, but you know it's going to have the effect. Some people are really skilled. It's called verbal engineering and I know lots of people that are very well versed at it to their detriment. How about flattery? Another piece of worthless conversation. Now you might think flattery is a good thing, but I'm not talking about sincere bona fide compliments that you give to people. What I'm talking about is what Kent Hughes describes. He says gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face. Flattery means saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his or her back. You know what I'm saying? It's sicky sweet talk that supposedly is there to win you, but you know that person really isn't being sincere. You know what it is? It's a lie with a smile. That's the kind of flattery that we're talking about. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, says Proverbs 26:28, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Fault-finding is another piece of worthless talk, another example of worthless speech. There are people who consistently criticize everything and everyone in the church, from the music to the message, from the way people dress to the way people pray. A spirit of self-righteousness and judgmentalism characterizes the unbiblical fault-finding critic. And we all know one, and we probably all have been one at one point or another, right? It's worthless speech. Once while John Wesley was preaching he noticed the lady in the audience who was known for her criticism and her critical attitude. All through the service she sat there and stared at his new tie. She came up to him after the service and she said very sharply, Mr. Wesley the strings on your tie are much too long. It's an offense to me. Mr. Wesley asked if there were any ladies present, who happened to have a pair of scissors in their purse, and when the scissors were handed to him, he gave them to the critic and asked her to trim those, those long tie streamers to her liking. And after she clipped them off near the collar, he then said to her, are you sure they're all right now? Yeah, that's much better, she said. Then let me have those shears for a moment, said Wesley. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a bit of correction. I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. It's too long. Please stick it out so I can trim some off. (laughs) Proverbs 10.31 says, The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. Degradation, another form of worthless speech. How often do you engage in destructive speech about someone and justify it because it's actually true? Have you thought about that as being worthless speech? Are we justified in conveying even truthful information, knowing that it can damage and hurt somebody? James said, Do not speak against one another, brethren, in James chapter 4, verse 11. Literally, do not speak down on one another, is what the literal rendering is. He is forbidding any and all speech, whether true or false, which intends to degrade another person's character. Paul calls it worthless speech. James calls it worthless speech. There is no redeeming value in it. And then there's filthiness. Now, this is something that I really shouldn't have to address from the pulpit, isn't it? Filthy talk obscenities should go without saying for the Christian. Unfortunately, it bears saying. Don't think that God doesn't care about filthy language as long as you don't take his name in vain. He does. He cares. Turn to Ephesians. Well, you're already in Ephesians 4. Just look at Ephesians 5 for a minute. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Children. Okay, that should be enough right there. Do you think God talks with a gutter mouth? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now here's the verse, verse 4. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks." The message puts it like this, though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, Christians have better uses for language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly, that kind of talk doesn't fit our style. Thanksgiving is our dialect. So gossip, innuendo, flattery, fault-finding, degradation, filthiness, they all classify as unwholesome words. They do not advocate growth in people, but rather dismantle and assassinate character. And wrong words, as we've said, reveals a wrong heart. Paul says, don't let any of it come out of your mouth. Rather, make it your goal to speak words that are worthwhile. Our dialect should be different, shouldn't it? Why? Worthwhile words, Paul says, are effective words. Verse 29 again. Let no um, wholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a, a word as is good for edification. They build up, Paul says, they should build up, not tear down. Speak words that are good for edification. What does edification mean? It's an architectural term, really. It refers to the building and the structuring and the advancement of something or someone. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you a spiritual architect in someone's life? Do you look at yourself as that? Are you building up and promoting the spiritual growth of others with your words? Or are you closer to being viewed as a one-man demolition team. You know, the big wrecking ball that knocks down buildings. To edify is to contribute to the solid construction of someone's spiritual well-being. Your words, believe it or not, have the power to push people toward the goal or rip them out of the race. Words are powerful. And you and I have a, have a choice, a serious choice. We can use our words to uplift or uproot. We can use our words to bolster or berate. We can develop or diminish, which characterizes us most of the time. Romans 14, verses 19 to 20 says, Let us pursue the things which make for peace peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God. And God's working on Christians, isn't He? Don't tear down what God is trying to build up. In the context of the body of Christ, His bride, Jesus' bride, whether it involves our gifts or our talents or our words or actions, Paul Paul's words to the Corinthians should impact our lives. He said in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Seek to abound for the edification of the church or the building up of one another. Let all things be done for edification. Why? Because Jesus Christ specifically stated that he is building his church, right? He told tell Peter that in Matthew 16? Jesus is building his church And we ought to be assisting in that process, not hindering it. If you are one who constantly tears down the church, the work of God is trying to do in and through, and even in spite of our imperfect condition, have you ever considered that you are placing yourself in direct opposition to God, who is doing work to build the church? Direct opposition. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16 says, Instead... Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Worthwhile words are effective words. But they're also essential words. Look at verse 29 again only such a word speak only such a word is this good for edification and then what's next according to the need of the moment remember last week I I passed out some tongue depressors I had this revelation this week as we were talking about that and thinking about that it's like for most of us we can't even get the tongue depressor in because it's already full with our foot Right? You first have to extricate your foot out of your mouth before you can put the tongue depressor in. Somebody said that I should have passed out shoehorns last week. <laughs> and then the next person said, yeah, probably half the congregation wouldn't even know what a shoehorn is. It's true. Who uses shoehorns? Our tongues really should have come with a warning label. Use sparingly. Let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger," James 1:19 says. "A controlled tongue is a barometer of spiritual maturity." Proverbs 29:20 20 says, "Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than him? That's my problem. I speak too fast. It's going to get the tongue depressor in there. Proverbs 17:28, after all, even a fool, and I've said this in the last couple of messages. Even a fool may be thought wise and intelligent if he stays quiet and keeps his mouth shut. Picture these statements as spiritual stop signs, okay? Spiritual stop signs. As I referenced back earlier in this series, it's better to stop and hold back speech and be perceived as ignorant than open your mouth and remove all shadow of doubt. I want to take a minute to talk about this rule of the road. This stop sign. There's some key signals, you know, that people send us to guide us in the way that we relate to them, aren't there? And I want to draw on the substantial research compiled by David Givens, who wrote a book called The Nonverbal Dictionary of Gestures, Signs, and Body Language Cues. These are like driving signs here we're going to present, like like one driving sign, the only one I want to deal with today, and it's the sign STOP. Right, Big stop sign. We start with this very simple sign. One author writes, people will send out signals all the time. Stop talking. Stop advising. Stop rambling. Stop criticizing. Stop gossiping. Stop hogging the verbal spotlight. Just stop. And in our interactions, we need to look for nonverbal stop signs. You know what they are? People start looking away. They stop giving you little they you know, they stop giving you little verbal clues, cues that say that they're listening. They lean backwards, they stop interacting and asking questions. Don't say to yourself, "Oh, I've talked them into submission. Now they're mine." <laughs> That's not true. Stop talking. Give somebody else a chance. If you keep running nonverbal stop signs like this, you may have an audience for a moment, but you will lose the chance to make a friend. Maybe you're doing okay in this regard, but there is someone in your relational world who needs to have their conversational license revoked. Maybe it's a trusted friend, family member, or a close co worker. Do that person a favor, take that person aside, and gently give him or her a little remedial class on nonverbal stop signs. Author writes, a friend of mine says that one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt anybody with it. That's a biggie, huh? Keep your mouth closed when you know you're right, but it's going to hurt somebody if you say it. Maybe you're in a position of power or authority and can impose your will if you choose. You may be a supervisor or a parent or just someone with more dominant personality. You can steamroll other people if you want to and win lots of arguments and feel right a lot. But you know what? Not going to have many friends. Every time two people make contact. Read this recently. I thought it was great. Every time two people make contact, they come away feeling either better and more energized or worse. more depleted. It's as if we carry our own little emotional ATMs around with us all the time. And at each encounter, we're either making deposits or withdrawals on the vitality on those around us. This is true even for interaction between people and animals, right? That's why people have pets and why some pets are more life-giving than others. According to the received wisdom, there is the difference between dogs and cats, right? A dog says, you love me, you feed me, you shelter me, you care for me, you must be God. That's what a dog says. A cat says, you love me, you feed me, you shelter me, and you care for me. I must be God. <laughs> you have dog people in your life and you have cat people in your life. Right? But remember also, too, that to someone else, you are either a dog person or a cat people, right? <laughs> Which is it for you? Make your words essential and make your words worthwhile. In ancient Greece, Socrates was, lo- he was widely lauded for his wisdom, and one day this great philosopher came upon an acquaintance who ran up to him excitedly and said, Socrates, do you know just what just I heard about one of your students? Wait a moment. Socrates purportedly replied, before you tell me, I'd like you to pass a little test. It's called the triple filter test. Okay? Write this down. This is one that we really need to follow. The triple filter test. Triple filter, he said. That's right. Socrates continued, before you talk to me about my student, let's take a moment to filter what you're going to say. And the first filter is truth. Truthfulness. Have you made absolutely sure that what you're about to tell me is true? No, the man said. I just heard about it and... Oh, all right, Socrates said. So you don't know really if it's true or not. Let's try the second filter. The filter of goodness. Goodness. Is what you are about to tell me about my student something good? Good. Well, no, on the contrary, up, oh, up. Oh. So Socrates says, you want to tell me something bad about him, even though you're not really certain it's true. The man shrugged, a little embarrassed. Socrates continued, You may still pass the test, though, because there is a third filter the filter of usefulness. Usefulness is what you want to tell me about my student going to be useful to me well no not really well concluded socrates if what you want to tell me is neither truthful nor good or even useful why tell it to me at all and the man shut his mouth and was ashamed you see we should at least attempt to make every word that we utter count, because every word we utter does count. One of the most chilling verses in the New Testament comes from the mouth of Jesus as he pointed out the importance of choosing our words. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, Jesus said this, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, there's a lot to be studied in there and how that relates to New Testament grace and all that stuff, but just just take it at face value that Jesus says our words are important. An unbridled tongue is evidence of an unbridled heart and it amounts to worthless religion, James says. We need to know how to temper and tailor our speech. Worthwhile words are effective for growth, essential to the need of the moment, and encouraging to the ears that hear them. And that's the next thing here in verse 29. Worthwhile words are enabling words according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, your words and my words can be a gift of grace to anyone who comes in contact with them. God may use your words as his means of blessing someone. Too bad that for Megan Meyer that somebody didn't create an account to bless her instead of humiliate her. Wonder if she might have gotten saved if someone had written nice things and told her about the fact that God loves her. See, God may use your words in an incredible way to bless somebody, and it only takes a few well-chosen, well-placed, well-timed words to change a person's whole attitude and outlook. Now, you've been given cards and pencils when you came in here, hopefully. You should all have them. And all throughout the course of this message thus far, you've probably been thinking about somebody. Maybe in a negative context. You may be thinking, oh, I know a person that talks just like he's talking about. Of course, you should be applying this to yourself. But maybe God put that person's name on your heart for a reason. I want you to take that card, and I want you to write a note to somebody this morning. Don't take it home and wait till later. What did God put on your heart in this moment? What name? What person? Write something to bless that person. Pray to God first. Ask him what he wants you to say. Ask him what verse he wants you to put on there. It might be just a reference. It might be just one word. It might be three words. Don't write a paragraph. Bless somebody with the card and then give it to them today. Would you do that? I'm going to take a moment right now and I want to pray. And you guys think about this and write on the card before the end of the message what God leads you to write. Father in heaven, you have blessed us with the, the gift of communication. You've enabled us, Lord God, to communicate with each other in a language that we can understand. And those words really do have meaning. They're not just words. They carry weight. And I disagree with the philosophy that words are just words. Maybe in, a, in an ideal world, words are just words, but if words didn't communicate a meaning, there would be no communication. And you have given us your Son, who called John called Him the Word of God, the living Word. And you have preserved the Word of God for us, and you have said that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray, Lord God, that we would take this word that you have given us and wield the sword effectively, not destructively. So whatever you put on our hearts right now, Lord God, to write to somebody, I pray that you would guide our hands and guide our hearts and guide our words. That it would be wholesome, effective, and essential words according to the need of the moment of that person you've put on our hearts. That it would build them up and edify them and give them grace. For Jesus' sake I pray. Amen. Proverbs 25.11 says, Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. So if there's someone that you know of that needs a word of encouragement or grace... Please give it. Write the note. Send the card. You will never, ever know how encouraging a single word is to a pastor or an elder or a worship leader or a Sunday school teacher or a wife or a husband or a child, etc. It's as if God puts his hand out and gently lifts lifts your chin and smiles in your face. It's like bathing in a pool of his favor, his grace. That's what Paul is talking about when he uses the word grace. Let your speech always be seasoned with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person, said Paul to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 6. Remember what I said last time we were together? That every single word we speak impacts someone's spiritual life either negatively or positively. Our words should be redemptive. That's that's the key word. That's the buzzword. Make your words redemptive. So that first principle there that Paul gives us is to train ourselves in the discipline of the tongue is that we must advocate growth. And as we close out here, I want to just give you that second point here in verse 30. We need to guard against grief. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, so often this verse verse here is seen out of its context. It's quoted and referred to in countless ways, but how often have we ever seen this verse in the context of our speech and our words? Because that's where Paul put it. We were given the Holy Spirit at our salvation. Chapter 1 says that we were sealed with Him. He lives in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, individually and corporately as a community of believers. And when we continue in practicing what is unhealthy and damaging to either the person or the church in the way of our communication as a whole, we cause the Spirit to weep. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Friends, remember that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a force. He has intellect, emotion and will and he can be hurt and grieved just as the character of our speech when it degrades, defames and destroys a spouse or a child causes pain and sorrow so it grieves the Holy Spirit who lives within us. He is the architect of God's spiritual house and when our cruelty and slander tear down another member of the church it tears down a part of the house that the Spirit is trying to build and he weeps, he grieves. You know that the Holy Spirit is God's personal mark of ownership on you? It also proves that we are authentic followers of Christ. To speak and to act in ways contrary to the Holy Spirit's character inflicts the worst kind of grief on Him. And the word grief here in this scripture is a powerful, powerful word describing everything from physical pain of childbirth to the emotional trauma of being offended. It's used that way in the New Testament. However, the most eye-opening use of this word appears in the description of Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we need to see here that Paul's comment here and his command to guard against grieving the Holy Spirit ought to be the most powerful motivation that you and I have to watch our mouths. That should be the motivation. Above all else, not how we look, how we sound, or how people perceive us. The motivation ought to be because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. One man observed it like this, and it's an appeal not to put God through Gethsemane all over again. Is what Paul's saying here. These venomous, vengeful, vicious, violent words not only break God's law, but they break God's heart. And we need not only to memorize the words of the psalmist David, but to internalize them and actualize them as well. He said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. I know I repeated that from last time. It's so important. Again, one more proverb. 21-23. Solomon writes, He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. With our speech, we either craft masterpieces or we create havoc. We bless or curse. We build up or tear down. We grace or we grieve. One careless word has the potential to demolish months and months and months of spiritual progress in a person's journey to faith. And yet one well-placed word could bring life and warmth to someone caught in the coldness of spiritual death. So here's my practical challenge for you guys. The card was just for today. I got another challenge that's gonna rock your world maybe. I hope it rocks the cyber world. Okay, you ready for this one? I'm calling it Facebook 429. Facebook for 29 days. If you're on Facebook, I want you to commit to write something every single day in your Facebook status for 29 days that will bless someone spiritually. 29 days. Share the gospel. Quote a scripture, build someone up in their faith, make it a point to intentionally write things that are worthwhile every single day for the next 29 days. I can almost guarantee that it will change the climate of your online conversation. And I know one thing that it will do at the very least, it will change your outlook on Facebook. Right? Because I honestly believe that our wise words, our wise choice of words can make a world of difference in somebody's life.